0: Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Maria Media and Markets on YouTube as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Great to be able to catch up with you. Um, Certainly there's been a lot going on from a central bank perspective, policy perspective that, of course, the Fed last week and the BOC the week before, really the only large central bank in the world to kind of start pulling back on the bond buying program. So maybe we should just kind of start there in terms of what you're seeing and what you expect to see from central bankers.
1: Sure. So the bank Canada did move first. Um, In some ways, you could argue, well, their bond buying program was more aggressive than even what the Fed was doing Um, at the pace of their borings. It's actually interesting to watch. The Bank of Canada borrowings were pretty much taking up all the extra debt the federal government was issuing. So you can kind of look at that in many different ways. I mean, the central bank's doing that to obviously stop deflation from happening, and that's why they're monetizing debt. At the same time, you got lots of bonds coming into the system. So it's kind of balanced out that way. But the Bank of Canada is getting up there in terms of its ownership of the overall market. I think upwards, getting close to 50%. The Fed's not there yet. So that's why, and I think, you know, Macken had said this before, he needs to pair it back probably sooner than expected because of that. Because once you start owning more than half of the market, you start getting liquidity constraints in the market and it causes lots of pricing problems. So that's why I think they started to pair back a bit earlier, even though when you look at Cain's economic recovery is slower and are, are coming out of the pandemic is going to be slower, they had to move a bit sooner than, than expected maybe.
0: So Joey, I got to unpack a lot there for mm. viewers to make, to understand and to make sure I'm understanding as well. So sure. in other words the pullback in the bond buying program in other words canada the bank of canada putting liquidity into the market to make sure we've got a lot of stimulus a lot of um a lot of money sloshing around so that we can get through this economic recovery they they didn't pull back because the economy is so great they pulled back because they were buying too many bonds
1: I think it's a bit of both. I mean, the economic recovery in Canada has been pretty good, all things considered. I mean, the federal government has provided a lot of stimulus already, uh, and that's definitely helped a lot of Canadians get by through the last year, Um, and they're continuing to do that. So- I guess when you look at the actual GDP numbers we're down maybe 3% year over year, I don't have it in front of me, sorry, but you know, we're not down where we were at this point last June. I mean, a year, a year ago would look things a lot worse than they do today. And obviously we are seeing, you know, lights on the horizon, so to speak. So I think that's also kind of saying, you know what, we can start to pair some more back. And then remember they had already cut back on other programs already that just weren't being used like the VA purchases and, and showing up the money markets. Those programs went away as soon as they were no longer needed. The monetization of federal government debt is more about sort of inflation and stopping deflation, but that can only go on for so long, too.
0: And so, Joey, but
1: to describe the
0: mechanics of this, right, the, the Canada issues bonds, right? and the people who buy them will be maybe pension funds, institutions, maybe international, and all depends on the credit risk of the country and the interest mm-hmm. rate that's being offered, the, the price of the overall yield of the bond. And, you know, countries, institutions pair that in terms of their long-term liabilities so pension funds and, and funding their, their government. And then they can go around the world and decide which country's bonds do I want to buy. That's the buyer. Um, now, the, so the country's issue, then you've got that kind of buyer. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about is that everybody understands going back to the financial crisis. You've got the various central bankers. Um, in the market, buying up those bonds as well. Can you just describe like, you know, it, it's, it's almost counterintuitive to think, okay, my government's issuing these bonds for other people, but they, they can't take up all the slack. So then we've got another institution, the central bank that has to buy them.
1: Yep. Well, it's, it's two things. I mean, the majority of Canada, Canada government bonds are actually held by Canadian institutions. So the biggest buyers, you know, it's either our, our pension funds here or our mutual funds here. If you own a bond mutual fund, you know, one third of your holdings are pretty much in Canada government bonds, right? So that's where all this money is coming from. Um, as the bank, sorry, as the government of Canada need to issue a lot more bonds, at the same time, you know, what happens then is if they're issuing bonds, they're taking cash out of circulation for, for, for lack of a better description, right? So that can that can cause some monetary problems, so you know you get an inflationary situation where government starts to squeeze out private enterprise, etc. Without going too deep into the economic yeah. foundation to it, right? That when the central bank steps up and buys those, they're doing the exact opposite. They're putting more cash out there to free float, right? Mm-hmm. So because of that, you kind of keep better liquidity in the system, and you stop. Basically, it's trying to stop deflation. It's, it's almost like you're printing money because you know the Bank Canada is issuing bonds and getting cash, and the Bank Canada is basically. you know, sending cash out to help fund the government to do that. So it's, it's very much a monetary phenomenon that we're dealing with here, but it's, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to basically push more cash out there to stop deflation from happening.
0: And I know we're getting into the weeds and and I'll, I'll stop on this weed, but, but the reason why I'm, I'm trying to point it out is because, and look, this is what we, you know, you want your government to be able to have the tools to be able to do all of this. Um, especially in difficult times, but the point is that this has been going on essentially since the financial crisis. We really could never get out of the way in terms of um, uh, the goal was to see inflation. We didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Now some people say we are going to see inflation, maybe even hyperinflation, just look at the lumber prices. So I'm just trying to say, I guess, and and but I'd like your take on this that, there's a lot of lot going on underneath the surface. Everybody gets excited that they maybe they're getting a free lunch right now, but that free lunch potentially comes at a huge cost. Just everybody be aware, and we don't know how this plays out.
1: No, and it's, you know, the market has priced in rising inflation. Like, let's make no mistake. When you look at, when the U.S. is the right example, we've got real return bonds. Tips in the U.S., they're at negative yields when you have know, got government bonds at positive yields. That difference there suggests you know, you're going to get inflation of 25 to 3% over the next you know, 20, 30 years. I mean, that's a step up from where we were before the pandemic, but it's not a huge leap. Um, I know we can look at lumber prices, we can look at food prices, and a lot of things have really spiked recently. You know, the central banks are looking at as temporary, you know, pent up demand for certain things. You know, it's we I mean, can see it, you know, I'm, I'm home right now, I need to rebuild my deck, so I need lumber, and everybody else isn't going on vacations, they're rebuilding their, their backyards. So yeah, you've seen this little spike in certain parts of the market, but the mm-hmm. overall level of inflation still isn't there quite yet. You've had a blip, but there really is a stated intent of central banks you know, in the U.S. and Canada to really push inflation higher. Um, and this is how they're going to try and do it, by just printing money, effectively, for lack of a better description, how long they let that last before they eventually turn off the taps and hike rates. And that's where I think the danger really is. So we've got you know, very low rates right now, lots of clash in the system, you know, banks willing to lend, you need know, hope, lots of alternative lenders out there willing to lend. You know, lots to do with that money? Because when you're sitting in cash right now, you're losing purchasing power. So really the whole philosophy here is let's keep rates low to the fact that you're losing money if you're sitting in it, go do something with that money and make the economy grow.
0: And and so stepping back or big picture, what are you seeing right now in terms of the growth rate and the GDP figures in the United States as well as Canada? Um, And also of course it was interesting because core PCE, so that's the preferred inflation measure of the Fed,
1: didn't miss expectations. It did. It was a bit lower, but again, it's it's a bit of a backward-looking number too. Um, the U.S. is probably three to four months ahead of us in terms of recovery, and and you see that. You see the full stadiums down there, and while well, we sit here in our in our basements and watch all our sports, um, mm-hmm. things are starting to get better in the U.S., but we're still not there yet. Um, you know, pers- PCE is personal consumption expenditure data, so what people are buying and what they're spending on, what's that really rising? It's it was missed expectations, but it still is rising. So we're getting there. Um, eventually, at some point in time, again, I, I this is what we start to, to gauge is, so at what point in time do we start to pare back the bond purchases, and at what point in time do we start to raise our interest rates again? And we're probably months away from the bond purchases drying up, and we're probably years still away from rates going higher.
0: Hmm. So are you concerned that we might see a repeat of, I think it was Q4 2018, and, as it relates to a temporary, a taper tantrum. That, taper tantrum.
1: That, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I think that's kind of baked in a little bit already. Um, when you look at what's, this is actually a very normal interest rate cycle. I mean, the level of rates is a lot lower than it's ever been before, right? But you've seen, you know, 10-year yields go from below 1% to almost 2% now. Um, I think we're probably about halfway through that move, but this is what always happens. So you have this depression or recession happening, you know, bond rates tumble across the yield curve. Uh, the Fed starts cutting rates, right? And they've taken it down to zero. And then of this natural, okay, well, this is where we are today. Let's price out the future. And this is where we're building in inflation expectations, we're building in growth expectations, and long yields start to rise. Um, you know, and when that difference between sort of two-year bonds and 30 year bonds gets around two and a half, three percent, that typically over the past cycles has signified the peak of the yield curve steepening. And after that, you know, long yields tend to rise, so tend to rally, sorry, fall a little bit, bonds rally, yields fall a little bit. As the Fed gets ready to start hiking rates, they start hiking rates, so eventually they invert the yield curve and we start all over again, right? So I'd say, you know, we're probably about halfway through this curve steepening, maybe a little more right now. Um, so it still is a pretty bad environment for bonds because of that reason. But this is just a very natural cycle we're going through at this point in time.
0: What does that mean then for the equity markets? And everybody should know that you're head of um, trading and fixed income trading and securities lending. Uh, yeah. But but what do you? how does that impact equity values?
1: So, I mean... Uh, again, from equity valuation, just looking at interest rates alone, I mean, when interest rates are so low, you could arguably justify a higher price and earnings multiple on the equity market, right? Because you know, earnings yield, the way to look at it from a bond guy perspective is instead of looking price over earnings, look at earnings over price. Like what's the earning yield on equities versus bonds right now? And yeah, at a PE of 20, it's still 5% versus the 1% you're getting in treasuries. Equities are still a good deal. Um, the one thing I just maybe also take a step back though is over the long run, the equity risk premium has sit in that five to 6% area. That suggests, you know what, maybe equities are a little expensive here given the multiple the market's trading at compared to where 10-year bonds are right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, six months ago, it's like, yeah, buy equities, don't buy bonds because bonds are terrible. Now we're getting back towards more that equilibrium where yes, you get a risk premium, but equities are probably a lot riskier, more volatile than just locking in at 2% from the Fed today, right? So we're, we're getting back to more reasonable valuations in bonds you know, equities have had a great run. I think, you know, when you have a massive recovery in the fall, if it doesn't disappoint, equities can continue to run because earnings are going to be that good. But at some point in time, you know, they're getting a bit expensive too.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you think though that, I mean, I think that you believe that we'll see about another percentage or so increase mm-hmm. in the yield environment, right? So that that's big. People should re- recognize that, that that means that, you know, the cost of, uh borrowing uh your credit card your mortgage your car payments whatever could go up yep um but do you think that do you think like the fed thinks that that will be transitory in nature
1: see the fed, transitory nature was i think more talking about near-term inflation they think it's going to tone down a little bit as we get in the months ahead um, We'll have to see. I mean, it's not something that the Fed can really control. They can try and influence, but they can't control it. So, you know, with all this money out there, I'm a bit skeptical that things are not going to sort of run away. Um, and you're seeing that really when you look at, especially in the U.S. market and TIPS are, are trading, you know, at zero or negative yields. Right now you've got to pay for inflation protection right now. And this is, un- mm-hmm. we haven't seen this before where TIPS yields were this negative. Um, you've got to pay that much in case uh, you have this, un- you know, Inflation that just might happen, just not unexpected inflation could actually happen here. People are really still paying up for that. At some point in time, you know, you need to get a real return on your money, um, and I think that's sort of the next shift here. Is you know we've probably built in the right long-term inflation expectations, but the next move up is definitely going to be a rise in real yields that's going to drive everything higher. This is in my view. So as real yields go up, that's going to sort of detract from everything else too right? You've got basically a shift in the underlying yields, the real cost of return on money right now. That'll sort of pare back what you're getting in other, other markets beyond fixed income at this point.
0: Hmm. So w- what do you think that means in terms of people who have cash in their bank accounts? And I know you said, and people hmm. believe that, you know, cash isn't your friend, but it is in some ways, if you can kind of wait to see that real yield move higher and then lock in at a higher rate.
1: Right. And I just, yeah. So the, the one thing is when you're cash is still probably better than bonds at this point in time, overall, um, let's just face it. A 1% rise in, in yields just overall is probably going to see a five, six, maybe 7% negative return on Canadian bonds in terms of the benchmark universe index over the next 12 months. Right. It's negative. You're going to lose money in bonds. Most likely when I mean, there's pockets of the bond market, that will do better than others, but overall fixed income is going to be a flat to negative return environment for the next little while. So yeah, cash is better than that, right? You're you're getting zero or yeah. next to zero, it's better than negative. Um, so what do you do with that? And this is what's happening: you're getting pushed into doing lots of different things, be it you know buying stocks, um, looking at alternative lending, um, be it private debt, high yields. High yields gotten expensive here too. Um, I think maybe the latest advent you should look at definitely receiving cash is maybe look at some of these long short credit funds who are sort of have a neutral duration, but they're taking advantage of credit spreads and it's obviously actively managed, right? But they're taking advantage of good credits and shorting the bad credits to sort of capture excess return. Alternative strategies should work fairly well in this type of environment, fixed income.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, are there many long short credit funds in Canada? Or are you looking in the States?
1: There, no, in, I, I just look at Canada. I mean, it's, okay. again, they're mostly done as a mutual fund or alternative fund or LP type structure. As mm-hmm. a Canadian, it's much more difficult to access US fund for that reason. Um, in Canada, there's a handful of funds. Um, I don't want to get into names, some of the names for yeah. compliance like reasons, but you know, definitely there's a handful out there that do this type of business, and they've, they've raised several billion dollars and they've been fairly successful. Um, some of them did have a couple of hiccups going through the you know March April of last year when you did see that credit spread blow out. Um, there's always some NAV problems with bond funds back then, but you know most of them have managed fairly well through this as long as they stuck to their strategy and didn't get into other things they should have been doing so it's, it's something to watch so look at each of the managers and their track records. and there's some good funds out there for sure
0: okay interesting so um the underweight long duration or going long bonds in the fixed income market because of the concern starting mm-hmm. rates rising and therefore the price goes down of the bonds just so everybody's on the same page yep. um overweight down what's that
1: yeah, yields up prices down inverse. Yeah.
0: yes inverse re- inverse relationship yeah. um overweight these uh these long short credit funds and then you also say um go overweight corporate versus government bonds maybe talk yeah. just a little bit about that and you know so many people you know come on and say own corporate bonds but but not all corporate bonds are created equally so we should get into some of those details as well
1: yeah so it's just overall corporates versus governments right now. And, and we can argue, you know, credit spreads are at pretty tight levels. I mean, they're close to historic tights, you know, when, when high yields only give you four uh, percent, you know, investment grades, you know, only give me one and a half. I mean, is is that really great right now? Well, on an absolute basis, no. I mean, it's it's expensive, but let's remember. So, investment grade corporates, let's say they yield, you know, half percentage point more than than government bonds do right now. That's very Expensive, I guess, given the credit quality. But let's remember like five year Canada bonds are only around 0.5%. So you get double return buying corporates over buying governments right now. That will provide some cushion, right? I mean, as rates go up, I think, you know, as a tide rises, you know, all boats float. Well, same thing. As yields go up on government bonds, corporate bonds are going to sell off, you know, similarly. But because they're already yielding more, they won't sell off as badly. Right, and that's that's the concept. that You'll get a better return on corporates over this period than you will uh, in governments, for just for that simple reason alone. So that's why we're overrate corporates versus governments in this environment, just because your relative returns will be better. High yield again. I guess it's expensive, but at least you're getting real returns at this point in time. I mean, high yield is going to give you a return in excess of inflation, even after defaults. Defaults should be falling. I mean, credit spreads should be tight because we're in an economic expansion um credit defaults are going to continue to trickle off as hopefully these companies are making more money and paying off their debts and they've got good access to cheap funding right now so it's it's still a very constructive environment for high yields similar to this for equities i mean the one thing i will say with high yield you have to watch though is high yield is much more correlated with equities in terms of its performance than it is with fixed income so just be aware of that it's when you're diversifying into high yield you could just be buying stocks instead and probably doing just as well if not better
0: especially with some of the dividends that are that are out there right now um yeah enjoy you uh, but sorry for one second here on on corporates what i mean what areas within corporate uh, industry is what i mean um look more interesting maybe are there any value opportunities in terms of where some of these bonds are priced and and the uh and the rate that they're offering versus others
1: I mean, in the higher end of the investment grade world, I do think the infrastructure names still look pretty good. I mean, and in the municipals too, I mean, compared to, you know, provincials and, and Canada's, um, you know, your, air, your airports, your pipelines, you know, ones with long life assets where the maturity of these bonds is less than like the asset being the important thing. Um, and this is with pipelines, you know, sometimes maybe you want to look at the bonds over the stock because you have a maturity date that's going to expire before we stop using oil. Right. Just throw it out there, right? Going to yeah. the screens, right? Um, so there's yeah, there's definitely good value in those types of names right now, just given the relative safety. You know, they they haven't been hot sectors. Um, I think those probably look a little bit better than perhaps your telcos. Um, your banks are your benchmark, they're fair value. Um, I don't think there's anything exciting there, except when we start talking about, and this is probably the most interesting part of the conversation, is you know, LRCNs as we call it, limited recourse capital notes, which are basically the new preferreds. I think there's great value there for those that are eligible to invest in them.
0: So I was going to ask you about mm-hmm. that. Of course, um, you and I have been talking about preferred shares for years, and mm-hmm. you know you've been very uh, forthright in terms of um, you know how preferreds have performed for retail investors. A lot of people have been hurt by them, and so we've always mm-hmm. you know over the past number of years really tra- tried to. Um, teach and tell people why that happened um, and what to be mindful of and because and, I think that you would probably agree that there are still some opportunities in preferreds depending on the time of our conversation uh, but, but what you're talking about right now the LRCNs that's kind of the new preferred share class so tell us a little bit about what they are what they offer and why maybe they're better
1: yeah so let's back up one second though on preferreds they've had a huge run for the last 12 months. They've actually beat yeah. the TSX. Um, they sold off just as hard as the TSX last March, but they rebounded very nicely since then. And then as LRCNs came into the market, they've rallied further. Now why that is, I mean, let's talk about what an LRCN is. It's called a limited recourse capital note. Basically it's you know below the subordinated debt, even on the balance sheet. So if you go through a balance sheet, you've got your senior debt, your subordinated debt, your preferreds, your equity. Well, these thought in as preferred shares, but a little bit different in terms of their structure in that on the bank's balance sheet, they're bonds, but even though from a classification perspective, they rank equal to a preferred. So if the bank goes bankrupt, you no, know, you're the same as a pref basically, you're all getting converted to equity and you're probably getting nothing, right? So there's a lot more risk with these than there is with subordinated debt and senior debt, which have a better claim on the assets or whatever's left. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's happened here is this year, or I guess it was last year, actually last, last second half of last year, the regulator came out and allowed the Canadian banks to issue these limited recourse capital notes to consider them tier one capital. Only a certain percentage. Um, but when you look at, you know, Royal Bank, who, by the way, is market cap is bigger than the entire preferred share market. if You want to look at putting in some perspective, right? Making uh-huh. it issue up to 10% of their tier one capital as LRCNs. For them, they can issue these bonds, which they really are, even though they've got some bells and whistles to them, um, at interest rates that are probably equivalent to where they would issue preferred shares. But preferred shares are paying dividends out of after-tax money, uh, whereas obviously the LRCNs are paying interest income and that's tax deductible. So it's much better financing for the banks. Um, it also is open up to a different investor class, whereas you know a lot of institutions can't really look at preferreds because as I pointed out, I mean, the whole market has less than a market cap of the bank itself. But these LRCNs are done in the institutional wholesale market where, you know, as a bond investor, you can go in. When your minimum piece is 200000 the out, on the new issue trade anyways, you can buy a sizable position. You get a big juice in yield. These things are probably yielding 3 to 4%, depending on the name right now, compared to obviously subordinated debt and senior debt yielding less than 2 So there's still a big pickup there, but it's still <laughs> as much cheaper for the banks to issue them. Um, so they've gone and done that, and they started calling away older preferred shares that are more expensive. And because of that, the preferred share market is shrinking. Um, so there's this whole supply demand imbalance. You probably still have a good investor base looking at preferred still, but there's less and less product out there. So preferreds have continued to rally. Hmm.
0: Interesting. There's a, there's a lot there, Joey, though, mm-hmm. to understand, uh-huh. yeah. which is why people have advisors and yeah. investment funds um, and tactical money managers. But so for right now, if, if, if somebody is saying, I've got some cash, mm-hmm. I want to put it to work. What would you look at an LRCN? Or R, L, yeah, LRCN or preferred share or both.
1: It depends. I mean, it depends. I think it's uh the, the key with prefers is you want to be buying them in a taxable account because you want the dividend tax credit because that's an extra 30%, right? Compared to what you I mean, they're still, they were still fine to hold maybe in an RSP because they were yielding so much more than bonds were, but now they're not, right? So now you can actually go buy an LRCN in your tax sheltered account and it makes way more sense to hold that there. Uh, they will trade a little bit better than a preferred you probably have better liquidity in the lrcn than you do in the preferred as well mm-hmm. uh for most investors you know what I, I do think prefers look cheap um holding them in your taxable account uh, perhaps not as cheap as some of the common equity of these companies who are paying great dividends as well um but these i mean and historically they've been a little historically prefers were more bond like they were less volatile the last 10 years they haven't been they've been just as volatile as equities providing less return but think of the last 10 years it's been a declining rate environment at the same time these banks and, and afterwards you know the pipelines and the telcos they issue what are called rate reset preferred shares um and the, there is a rate reset structure in the lrcns as well every five years the coupon changes it's at a certain percentage point above where fiber canada bonds they reset them every five years they call them so what happened with prefers was and why it is so poorly as rates were falling Guess what? Your dividend rate in the future is falling. So it's like a negative duration almost. As rates fall, preferreds go down. As rates go up, because all of a sudden you've got a higher mm-hmm. dividend stream or higher chance of call, these things go up, right? Mm-hmm. So now we're starting to see the the opposite happening, where you know rates are starting to rise here a bit again. These spreads have come in. They've got a new financing vehicle. So press will continue to do fairly well. So I guess, again, sitting on cash here right now, I would definitely still have an allocation to preferred shares in some shape or form. Knowing how liquid the market is, you probably want to go actively managed over passively managed. Um, so there's funds out there. There's an actively managed ETF out there. Or if you really want to play sort of the rise in rates and the, the, the end of the rate resets the banks, you buy a, you know, an ETF or a fund that's mostly focused on rate resets over the entire broad market. Because there still is a lot of other stuff in that market that isn't the best quality you probably want to avoid. Hmm. Okay.
0: Um, Joe, I do want to get to a couple of questions here uh from viewers and um this is from ryan uh for joey just curious what his thoughts are on floating rate press at these levels they have had a good run um does he still see upside in this area if so any names you could recommend you kind of touched upon a lot of that but what do you think
1: Yep. I mean, so I can't, so unfortunately I can't mention specific issues or names for compliance reasons. we got to sign off and everything we talk about. Um, looking at floaters right now, and it's mail pair it back because a lot of these issues are coming up for reset where you have the choice of going with a fixed rate, you know, you know, five-year can of bonds plus X percentage point, or you can float where your dividend will reset every three months at three months T-bills plus the same percentage point. So right now there's definitely still a pretty good spread between a five-year bond and a T-bill. It's called, you know, for lack of better, but three, but three rate hike difference here. So right now, if, again, this is looking at the reset part, do I wanna go fixed or I wanna go floating? Well, do I think the Bank of Canada is gonna hike more than three times in the next five years? Yes, probably, but I don't think they're gonna do that for the next two years, so I think the cash flow on the fixed rate is gonna be better on the floating rate. So anybody coming up for a reset right now, I'm still saying, you know, go with fixed, don't go floating, or if you have a floating, go with fixed. You'll make more cash flow over the next five years with the fixed rate reset versus the floating rate. Now, when you want to compare some of not coming up for reset, it's very much, it depends, right? What's uh-huh. the yield looking like on these things right now? I mean, uh, some of these folders are actually yielding a bit more than the fixed rate right now. Um, so if you can buy a floating rate preferred that has a pair that's fixed at a price that's cheaper than the fixed rate, then yeah, absolutely. They do look cheap here right now. Um, your dividend is a little bit lower, but that's going to probably correct over two years or even better, you have a chance to go for a reset and, and you can get called out perhaps at a point in time so it, it really does depend um i mean with the rise in rates in the next couple of years they can make sense um but overall i guess like yeah buying the rate resets that are floating rate they can make sense right now and they're still probably good value for sure
0: and i'm gonna say wait for one second but um i think a lot of people are also wondering you know with respect to their mortgage rates should they do fixed or variable Right, what do you think, recommend?
1: The exact opposite, there. I think it depends. I think you're never going to see fixed rates this low for a very long time. Um, yeah, the other thing too, it's been always oh, been worried with the fixed with the floating rates is you're based off prime, not off of you know what you're with bank handle rate per se. And the banks have been playing around with that spread for a while, they keep widening that, that spread out. So, I'm a little distrustful perhaps of the banks doing that, or perhaps jacking prime rates up outside of the Bank of Canada. So, because of that. I tend to go fixed. I, I right now I'd be locking in five years fixed or longer if I could at a very low rate of paying that off because again, we think rates are gonna go higher in the next two years. Um probably time to go a great time to lock in at below two percent on a five-year mortgage. Absolutely lock it in.
0: Yeah, that, that's where I was leaning to, but uh good to hear your views.
1: Um,
0: because people are, you know, everybody's buying a new home and, and looking at, at mortgages or refinancing. Um, let's uh take a, another one here, another question. Um, and this we, we've touched upon this in our conversation, but Could you ask Joey how far he thinks Fed debt monetization can go before we start to see negative consequences? Also, does the BOC have the same capacity to monetize debt as the Fed, or are we more constrained as we are not the reserve
1: currency? Yeah, so again, I don't think it has a lot to it being a reserve currency per se, but I mean, the Bank of Canada, let's go back. I think it's that 50% level when the central bank owns more than half the market. That seems to be a bit of a tipping point where the central bank is concerned you, know, you own more than half the market. Like, How free is this market really, and, and how good is that market going to be? So when they start to push up against that limit, they start to want to pair it back. And I think that's why the Bank of Canada already decided to do that. So to answer the question, yeah, I think the Bank of Canada has less room than the Fed does. Uh, the Fed's only sitting at about 40% right now. Um, Obviously, they've got a much more massive amount of Treasuries outstanding. So the Fed can keep going bigger and for longer than the Bank of Canada can at this point in time. Um, you know, but we're getting close to that point, you know, where, you know, unless they keep issuing bonds, which they will, uh, at some point, the Bank can and the Fed are going to have to start to pair things back. And that'll be very much an inflation situation, too, when they start to do that. But we'll have to watch it. But I think we're getting close in Canada for sure.
0: Okay. Um, and, Joey, this is from Brian. He said he purchased the ZPR, which is mm-hmm. BMO's uh, Ladder Preferred Share Index ETF about a year ago. It's been a great investment, marching steadily higher and pays a good dividend. What's your outlook for ZPR over the next two to three years?
1: Yeah, so that's the one I'm sort of talking about that focuses on the rate reset preferreds. That's, that's going to continue to probably outperform the broader market over the next little while. Um, again, it's had a huge run. Um, I think it continued to do well uh, given the environment we're in, but I think you've made the majority of your capital gains already. You're probably holding on this one now maybe for a bit more capital gains as this market continues to shrink. Um, I don't think there's a ton of run left in it, um, I'd also say the one thing I have with the preferred share ETFs, and this goes to all ETFs in general. When you have an ETF that passively tracks an illiquid market, you tend to have a lot of tracking error. ZPR has a lot. CPD is the other big preferred share when it can a lot of tracking error right there. And then the problem is they basically show you what they're going to be trading in the next couple of months. And you then get picked off by the trading desk because it's such an illiquid market. As this market's more illiquid, I think that tracking error continues to get worse and it's going to get tougher for them given the size of those funds compared to the size of the market right now.
0: Describe what a tracking error means.
1: So, yeah, so your tracking error is your performance versus the benchmark performance. There's always going to be a bit of a lag because the benchmark just doesn't have any transaction costs in it. Um, but these have tended to do even worse than that, having a bigger track tracking error than normal transaction costs would suggest. That just points out they're dealing in pretty ill markets. It's tough for them to really track a passive benchmark that doesn't have to account for that. Okay,
0: and that's really important depending on, you know, which ETF you're buying um, to understand um, the tracking and the tracking error and any kind of leakage as well from a trading perspective,
1: correct? Yeah, I mean, you see inequities too, like buying an S&P fund is never going to be a problem. You're going to have very little tracking error, but when you get to small microcap emerging market funds, there's definitely, you know, what works academically when you don't have these trading frictions and bid offer spreads to deal with and what actually works in the real world isn't the same right? That's the one thing to watch when you're buying all these ETFs out there.
0: And Joe, just stepping back um, a a little bit here, um, what are you seeing in the market these days from a um, money flow perspective, sentiment perspective, meaning... You know, I think over the past uh, number of weeks, or even more so, it's been very quiet. Depending on which mm. trading desk I'm talking to, so well, what, what's going on? What do you think people are doing? Are they sitting on their hands? <laughs> so-
1: They're buying houses in Toronto, apparently.
0: That's true.
1: <laughs> it's you know, it has been quiet. Um, and fixed income—that's not surprising. I mean, I, I mostly work with you know retail investors, you know, private wealth managers. They have been very quiet in fixed income for obvious reasons that you know rates are just so low. It's it's hard to get excited. Um, GICs are yielding more than corporate bonds right now. So we're seeing a lot of people buying GICs. I mean, why wouldn't you? You're, you're 100% insured by CDIC and you're getting more than you're getting on a true B corporate. So we're seeing tons of money going there. We're seeing tons of money sitting on sidelines in the cash. Um, and it's going, again, we're seeing a lot of money flowing into these alternative funds because they're chasing yields. Be careful what you chase. I mean, obviously we had a bit of a blow up here in, in Canada the last couple of days for completely unrelated, market-related reasons, right? But you've got to be careful what you buy too when you're looking at these types of funds.
0: Just describe what you saw over the past couple of days.
1: I mean, so bridging finance, obviously, I think it's been in, in the news. Um, again, it's, it's interesting. I don't want to comment because I don't know enough about what their holdings are, what the story is. But the OSC has put the funds into receivership, which I, I do not have ever seen that in Canada, or at least not in my, that I can recollect. Um, but there's been no criminal charges laid as so far. So it's a story we continue to watch. But it just goes to show when you're, again, bridging the income fund was basically, they were doing a lot of private loans and debt. And as an investor, you could put money with them and capture much better yield than you would normally get by you know, corporate bonds or high yield bonds. So, but it's a lot less liquid. So it's something to be careful of when you're looking at these types of funds that can be great enhancers. But as with everything, diversify and don't put all your eggs in one basket because these types of things can happen. I mean, you're going to be locked up in those funds for a while until the receiver has takes a look at what's really there and can start to open up for redemptions again.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's so important to understand um, the risk parameters. And we all know that, um, you know, especially the seniors or retired people who have worked so hard for their money, um, and, and they're not making much money off of their money, and they get kind of pushed up the the risk curve. And that's been a risk that we've been talking about since the financial crisis, Joey.
1: Yeah, and there's no free risk. There's no free lunch. I mean, obviously... Yeah. Something yields more for a reason, be it, you know, liquidity reasons and then you're locked in for a certain point in time or there's credit quality reasons or whatever it may be. When you're getting more, you're getting it for reasons. So just be careful what you're doing.
0: Right. And and that's important to point out. The reason why you're getting more is because they're judged as riskier. Therefore, they've got to pay you more on your money to take your money and, and invest it. Um, you know, that that's the, that's the bottom line here on the premise in terms of why you get paid more on an interest rate, it's not because they're nice. It's not because they're better. It's because of the um, the risk return level.
1: Absolutely, and that's that's absolutely what it's all about. I mean, it's very quantitative and fixed income. Like you know, the province of Ontario pays you sixty basis points more than the federal government because they are that much riskier. And we can go on and fit it until we get to twenty one percent yields. Because you know what, you might not get your money back. Just be aware. Yeah
0: um joey i'm asking a lot of i'm spending a lot of time in the um digital asset world cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. um so i and i love asking everybody what they think about it um you know and even if they're not involved i think most people have a view um what do you a, I guess what's your view if you want to share it but also what are you seeing um in, in terms of how it might start to impact the fixed income world, new products, innovations, et cetera. Anything going on there?
1: Well, I'm still waiting for the first bond denominated in Bitcoin. That'll come. There you go. I'm sure it'll come at some point (laughs) in time. Um, Again, I haven't done a deep dive into Bitcoin. I guess, you know, I tend to look at Bitcoin more as equivalent to a gold or a store of value as opposed to something that's going to be, you know, I mean, again, I don't know all the mechanics behind it, but it's definitely more of a security or a gold or real asset type of instrument. Um, So that's Bitcoin in and of itself. Now, where I get more concerned is when I see, you know, when the Bitcoin exchange, I think it was CoinHedge or something like that, trading at a bigger market cap than NASDAQ and the NYSE, I kind of go, well, hang on a second. These companies are making billions of dollars a year and they have lofty, but reasonable, but at least like explainable valuations. How is this one exchange that just trades one thing going to be worth more? Oh, it's tech company. Okay. Well, beyond me, I'm a bond guy. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't pretend to get it. It is what it is. I think a lot of those things are definitely a voice, uh, if you don't get it. So I, for, for me personally, I've got no exposure to digital assets or currency or anything in my portfolio at this point in time. Cause I just, again, I don't think it's a mature enough market to say, you know, I want to put 5% of my portfolio into that at this point in time. Yeah. I'm watching. It's interesting, but let's see how this all plays out.
0: And I think we're starting to actually see uh, more investment firms uh, at least allow or have it available that investors can put up to 2% of their overall assets, just to kind of give people perspective in terms of, you know, maybe the right allocation. I mean, that's up to everybody on an individual basis, but, but that 2% is a number I've, I've seen out there.
1: Yeah. And, it, and it's fair. I mean, I think it, it probably does, does a replace in your, your, your basket of real assets, along with real estate and gold and, and tips and RBs, which again, you're paying for inflation protection there. Maybe these are better. I, I think definitely it fits in the mix, uh, but it's probably not going to be a majority holding of what you're, what you're into right now. So just be careful with that. But yeah, I think it's definitely worth a play just to keep mm-hmm. an eye on it.
0: And, and Joy, just uh, kind of want to wrap it up here with your thoughts on the Canadian dollar obviously got a, a nice move on on two fronts, really, of course, the price of oil rallying and then also, of course, the BOC's most recent decision to kind of pull back on that bond buying program um, versus other versus any other central bank. And for our viewers to understand, currencies really are to to a degree, uh, a relative game as it relates to the expectations for interest rates. And and also, of course, in in this era, um, printing of money. So do you think that the Canadian dollar can stay at these levels? Will it move higher or will it move lower, reflecting perhaps more of our economy versus the United States? And also, you know, we are behind the United States in many, many countries as it relates to the, uh, the vaccine rollout. And I'm talking two shots, not one.
1: Yeah. So it's, a, you know, one thing that's definitely benefiting the dollar here too is industry differentials. I mean, you know, in this, you know, Canadian yields are higher than US yields going out to six years. So, in the short end, which is where the whole, you know, the futures market works on your industry parity, you, you know, you've got, in, you've got carry there. If you buy Canadian dollars, sell US dollars, you can make a profit, right? And that's helping buoy the currency a little bit. That's in there too, along with oil prices. Um, even though our economic recovery is behind the US, it's probably ahead of a lot of the rest of the world. Um, I know in Canada, we compare ourselves to the U.S. first, maybe the U.K. second, two countries that are definitely further ahead of us in vaccines. But, you know, we're a little bit ahead of Europe, the rest of Europe here right now. We're doing pretty well on that front. I mean, despite you know, all the, the, the press around our, our vaccine strategy, we're actually doing pretty well compared to the rest of the world. Um, I think we'll be open, able to open up domestically before a lot of the rest of the world. So for those reasons, Canada's probably a pretty good trade. Um, Canada started off this pandemic in a better position than a lot of other countries did. When you look at federal and even federal and provincial combined debt to GDP, we started in a better place. We raised a lot more debt since then. It's up there. Um, And I would even say I was pleasantly surprised that the federal government came out with a budget a year late, mind you. I'll criticize it for that. But they actually have a plan to restore some semblance of, you know, deficit to GDP levels and, you know, paying down some debt and growing the economy and it, it wasn't unreasonable. We're just going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars, and not have a plan. There is a measurable plan to get things hopefully in a better position than we are today. And we will, we will get there. So I think a lot of those things have combined to make Canada a pretty attractive place right now compared to the rest of the world. Uh, so that's all pretty Canadian dollar positive um, compared to other currencies. I think we're a little bit overvalued versus the U.S. dollar here right now, though. Um, okay. You know, just, again, interest rates are, are there, but, I, again, the U.S. is going to probably come out gangbusters. There's great opportunities to buy in the U.S. uh all probably ahead of us still. So, for that reason, versus the U.S., I'd be a buyer U.S. dollars here, but a buyer Canada over, say, Euros at this point in time.
0: Okay, got it. We diverted to currencies, but, but it's all part of the same story in terms of the interest rate differentials, as you say, uh, and, and uh, country risk. Um, Joey, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate your insights as always. It's nice to keep the conversations going. So thank you.
1: Absolutely. It's great to be on. It's great to do this. Thank you. It's
0: fun to have a longer conversation.
1: It is without commercial interruptions. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you. We'll see you soon.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Okay. Talk to you okay. later. Okay.